Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Between them, no one. You're listening to the Gator Sports Podcast with your host, Zach Abelverde and Graham Hall. Welcome into another Gator Sports Podcast presented by the Gainesville Sun. I'm your host, Zach Albaverde, joined to my right by Gainesville Sun basketball beat writer, Graham Hall. How's it going, man? Good to be here always with you, Zach. My pleasure. You've had a little bit of a less busy week than you normally would with signing day. Being a little bit not as hyped as it usually is, but it's always my pleasure to be here and recap what's happened in Florida athletics with you. Being a chilly week in Gainesville yeah, as well, man. right? It's about to start raining as well. It's going to go right from the 40s to just pounding us with rain in the 50s for the next week. Well, it was a cold day, I guess you could say, in Gainesville on a Wednesday with the result of the basketball game and certainly not a lot of things heating up on the recruiting trail with no new signees added to the 2021 class. But we did get an update on Keontae Johnson, which we'll address at the start of the show. We'll also be joined by Andy Hutchins from AlligatorArmy.com to discuss his piece on Keontae Johnson, his thoughts on Florida basketball, and of course where things stand with Mike White because, Graham, I'm sure as you know, all the Mike White haters are, are out in full effect now after that game. Yeah, they were pretty quiet for two weeks when Florida had a four-game winning streak, including <laughs> wins over Tennessee by 26 points, the number six team in the country. And then this past Saturday, we previewed it on last week's show, yep. Florida went on the road for the SEC Big 12 Challenge and had a huge 85-80 to 80 victory over the number 11 team in the country, West Virginia. So absolutely, last night's 72-66 defeat to South Carolina was disappointing when you put it in the context of what Florida just did. Florida was as cold as the weather out there, Zach, like you said let South Carolina outscore them 13 to 1 over the last 505 of play. Florida didn't score for the last 205, had a free throw from Trey Mann and that was it. Florida will have a chance to regroup and get back in the win column, but that one certainly hurt. This was the first chance for this Florida program to have a five-game win streak in 2 years, Zach, and yeah. you have to do that anytime you're trying to stake your claim for the NCAA tournament. Absolutely, and we'll get into that game. We'll break it down here in this first segment a little bit more, and we'll also discuss it with Andy. But before we do that, and before that game happened on Wednesday, we got the update from UF and Keontae Johnson's parents, which let everybody know, and everybody had been waiting to know, that the collapse that Keontae Johnson had was not COVID-19 related. And that was something that obviously college coaches, college players wanted to know after it was reported initially after he collapsed by the Associated Press and by Sports Illustrated and later confirmed by us at the Gainesville Sun that Johnson did test positive for COVID-19 in the summer. And once that had gotten out and there still hadn't been any answers on what his diagnosis was while he was in the hospital, everybody, fans, players, certainly media members and coaches wanted to know if it could have been COVID-related. And we now have those answers. And that, I think, brings, I think, a sense of relief to everybody in the college sports world to know that 
if things have been conclusively decided on that it wasn't COVID related, that the COVID protocols and all the other athletes out there that could have had COVID maybe don't have to worry about a situation like what Johnson went through happening to them. Now, that's what we know. What we don't know, or at least haven't gotten confirmation from UF is what his diagnosis was, and we're not going to get that because of student privacy, and we haven't got that from his family either. Now, as everyone knows, we reported at the Gainesville Sun that he had been diagnosed with acute myocarditis after he arrived at UF from Tallahassee from an MRI that he received. And at this point, Graham, after multiple updates and time has passed, we have not gotten from Johnson's parents or UF confirmation or denial on that diagnosis that we reported, but we still stand by that, and we very clearly laid out in that report that despite the diagnosis of myocarditis, that is something that could be caused by several things, including viral infections such as COVID-19, which has been linked to myocarditis, but that's something that's been around college athletics and sports for several decades. It's not new, and athletes have gotten it before, and you know we're not going to hear anything else from Johnson's parents or UF. Uh, it's going to be up to Keontae to speak now on what his medical situation is and what his future holds, and we certainly wish him you know the best of luck, and he's still going to be around this program, Graham, and I think that that's something that really means a lot to the these players and coaches. Absolutely. From talking to the players for the last two months, the shocking ordeal, the trauma that they went through has been helped. Their their pain has been eased by Johnson's presence around the program. Him being able to return to his smiling self, joking, laughing, dancing, as we've all seen, has absolutely benefited this program. And it's something that we have made sure to highlight frequently in our coverage. When I spoke to shooting guard Noah Locke prior to Florida's loss to South Carolina, Johnson's roommate and a guy who's been his teammate since middle school, when we talked to Locke, he said that having Johnson around simply has benefited them. Whether he's playing or not isn't really the point right now. The fact that he's healthy and still here with this program has given them a whole lot of strength, and that really has been the focus with a lot of those updates. Keontae, the person, not just boiling it down to his diagnosis. And they made a point yesterday to note that any further updates will come from Keontae himself, the individual. Keontae traveled to the team to West Virginia and was a part of that big upset win over the Mountaineers. And that was something that we previewed going into the weekend and another huge win for Mike White's program. And I think leading into Wednesday night's game, you thought that Florida was set up to continue that win streak. What did you think about obviously going up to West Virginia and getting that upset and and kind of how that led into what we saw last night. Yeah, Zach, over the last two weeks, Mike White has been open about this team changing up a lot of what they've done on the offensive end. When Johnson went out, their best dribble driver of the basketball, they really had to alter their offense around a lot more screen and rolls, run some more Princeton sets, really utilize their available personnel a lot more and doing that in the middle of the season the middle of the sec gauntlet is extremely difficult it's no easy task and then you add in an sec big 12 challenge against the number 11 team in the country in west virginia you play number six tennessee you play a bunch of teams in a way that you're not accustomed to playing through your front court at the same time You're also losing Johnson, who was your best defender, and then you have Lewis go down. So this team right now, not so much focused on the offensive end. The changes offensively, they're figuring those out. But defensively, they 
have a lot to figure out here if they really want to make the NCAA tournament, which it looks like they're going to do, but still a lot to figure out. And last night showed it that defensively, they have a long way to go. And you heard Trey Mann after the game. He said, they punked us. They punked us, baby. They punked us. And, you know, Trey said some things as well that his head coach didn't necessarily agree with, that they lost a little bit of focus. He said that this program in the last two couple years or whatever, every time they had a little bit of success, they tended to lose a little bit of focus. And Mike White disagreed with that. He said these guys were really locked in in practice the last couple days, these last few weeks even. He didn't agree with that. But he did feel like his team wasn't hungry enough, which that kind of surprised me. You would think that they'd be hungrier, backs against the wall, motivated. Everyone's counted them out without Johnson, no Lewis. And they figured some things out and gained some confidence. And they've beat some opponents as well. you think they'd be hungrier to prove moving forward that they're a contender rather than a pretender. Absolutely, Graham, and that's what we're all waiting to find out. And we're going to find out some more from Andy Hutchins now from AlligatorArmy.com to get his thoughts on the Keontae Johnson update and also this Hoops team. We'll be right back after this break. joined by Andy Hutchins from AlligatorArmy.com to discuss Keontae Johnson, Ford Hoops, and all the things that he's been reporting on his site. Andy, welcome into the show. How's it going, my man? Hey, I'm pretty good. Thanks for coming. Absolutely, man. Well, obviously, we wanted to uh, have you on. We got some uh, news from the UF basketball program on Wednesday, as, as well as a game that we'll talk about with you. But you know, I think definitely the news of the day was the update that we got on Keontae Johnson from his parents that uh, his condition, his collapse was not COVID related. And that was something that, as you know, the college sports world had kind of been waiting on. And you wrote a great piece on alligatorarmy.com kind of, you know, hashing out, recapping everything that's led up to this point. Um, So, you know, we can start there, Andy, just first of all, what was, um, you know, your reaction to, you know, everything that happened to Keontae and, and then just, you know, everything that's played out since then. So, you know, first of all, thanks for kind words about the piece. Um, but going back to December, right? December 12th is when this all happens. Uh, Keontae goes down the first media timeout of a game against Florida State that obviously Florida is really interested in winning. No one knows what's going on. No one's going to know what's going on for probably, I think it was close to 24 hours that we didn't have a significant update on his condition. Um, and then 48 hours, I think we got the condition. Uh, he's on the way to Gainesville or in Gainesville doing better. All this time, all these months and weeks since then, we've sort of been living on this is half of what the story is, or this is what we're going to tell you. Um, and it's you know totally fair for the family, especially, and for Florida to do that because they've got responsibilities to Keontae's privacy, uh, responsibilities to the family's interest in privacy. And you don't necessarily get everything that you want to hear as soon as you want to hear it, uh, mm-hmm. which was especially something that the college sports world had a problem with. Um, because, you know, if you're a college basketball coach, if you're John Calipari, if you're Bill Self, if you're Mike Krzyzewski, you don't know whether if you've got a player who had COVID last summer, which Johnson reportedly did, um, you don't know if that player is going to be susceptible to the same sort of uh, incident. You don't know whether he's going to be more susceptible to developing myocarditis, which um, you've obviously reported that Johnson did. And you don't know whether those things are linked at all. You've just got a whole sea of unknowns you're navigating through. Uh, and yesterday we finally got something that's concrete and that's good news, not necessarily for Johnson, but for the college basketball world at large. Uh, if you've got concrete proof 
that you're not risking something more by putting a player out there after he's had COVID or after he's had post-COVID syndrome or whatever it is, you've got the entire industry working again. You don't have the same sort of threat of a shutdown or the same sort of threat of um, a random incident being the tragedy that you didn't see coming like you did on you know Tuesday morning when you woke up. So that's great news, right? That's great news for college basketball. It's great news for sports writ large. Um, you know, Johnson is the first person we knew of who had COVID and collapsed like this. It was not a, you know, he was one of many. It was not a, this was something that we didn't know whether he had COVID. We've got pretty good reporting that he did. And this was something that was very, very seriously looked at by everybody. Now, that's good news for the world. Is it good news for Keontae Johnson? I don't think so. I mean, because we've got reporting, your reporting, says he's got myocarditis. There's nothing in the statement that was put out yesterday, which is very carefully worded, probably passed through some lawyers, weren't just lawyers that uh, answered to the family. Th- this statement does not actually deny that he has myocarditis, does not deny that he has COVID. It doesn't do anything of that sort because it's providing space only for what it's providing space for, which is telling people that whatever he had does not have any relation to COVID, which is fine, but it's only part of the equation. And that part of the equation doesn't necessarily solve anything for Johnson, who the statement suggests, but doesn't actually confirm is going to be out at least the rest of the year and who's really just got a question mark in the future right now. Yeah. And that's, and and that's obviously the, the scary thing because, you know, first and foremost, obviously fans, his family members, and, you know, everyone at UF and, and then certainly everyone in the media, you know, wants to, you know, keep Keontae's health first and foremost and, and make sure that he's going to be able to be okay uh, and be healthy and, and, and see what his basketball future might be after that. But, you know, at, at this point, that's kind of what's next is, is what is, you know, Keontae going to say in the future, what what's going to be his next step. Uh, but, at this point with what UF has come out and said from his, his family statement, you know, their COVID protocols and everything that they've been doing with their athletes and, and kind of where the college sports, where the college sports world stands, uh, everybody can feel at ease. And I think that was really, you know, great how you highlighted that because that was what everybody wanted to know, not just John Calipari, but coaches across the country, players across the country. And to the family's credit, they always said that when we had, definitive answers on things that we knew people wanted to know and could potentially help, we would provide it. So that's kind of where we're at now. The family didn't have to do that either, but let's be clear about that. This is, this is a private medical condition that is only public because of the fact that this is a public figure. You don't have to provide updates on that. Doing that is providing information to other people that is valuable to other people in a way that isn't necessarily valuable to you except to be a good person, to do the right thing. And they've done the right thing, and they should be lauded for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, the public figure thing, when I think about that the most, you know, this was being broadcast on ESPN, and ESPN re-aired Keontae Johnson's collapse, and then the internet got a hold of it. So you didn't just have Florida, Florida State fans, the sparse crowd in Tallahassee witnessing this. This became something that was witnessed by millions around the world. Yeah. Uh, kind of... <laughs> In, in an unprecedented degree, I think you could say, because like what you said, it was sports organizations around the world in other countries looking at a possibility. It's it's worth pointing out that this wasn't, like you said, a cluster. This was one of millions of billions in a sense here. So that's why there was all this clamoring for information, which brings me to the interesting intersection of NCAA college athletics, because you have a figure where one student privacy laws apply 
and you're at a point where athletes cannot make money off their likeness. So you have the division one institutions representing them often. So we were all at the mercy of them. And now the ball has been put in Keontae's court. One more thing I got to say here, the last statement coming out here. Yes, they did not have to ever give updates, but the last statement coming out from his family, not having the diagnosis out there did remind me of the importance because of the circumstances surrounding it, the importance of it being reported once it was able to be verified. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's the, it's the answering questions that um, are left by public reporting or public um, statements. You know, you, a journalist's job is not the same as a PR person's job. Uh, a journalist's job is not to carry water for the university of Florida, the Florida athletic department. Um, and whatever people's perceptions may be, whether, you know, it's the idea that Florida journalists should be uh, standing up for the Gators or rooting for the Gators or something like that. You know, it's, it's the idea that there are always going to be these blank spaces in, in various different capacities, you know, whether it's talking about a player getting suspended or a player getting injured or a player leaving the program or something like that. There's going to be questions that you can answer in a responsible way without invading somebody's privacy, without stepping over what the bounds were. Um, you know, the family saying that you should only trust the information that comes from us doesn't necessarily negate the idea that you can still do good, truthful, promising journalism reporting. Um, out of that, you know, there are going to be ways to get verified information that is true in any manner. Um, and as long as you do that by the good and abstaining rules of journalism, you've done the right thing. Uh, and, and that's the, the thing is you can't always trust people to tell you the whole story in, in, in this case, even when those people have other people's best interests at heart, because there's going to be things that are sensitive that people don't necessarily Absolutely. want. To have. Yeah, no doubt. And obviously it was a sensitive situation for the Florida basketball players that had to witness that moment and everything that transpired after that. And, you know, Andy, we didn't know where the season was going to go from there how these players and coaches were, were going to you know, be able to c continue the season after that point. First of all, what were your thoughts on UF's year and its potential going into it? And then, you know, before we get to the, the recent games, how do you feel like the players and just the organization um, responded after what happened to Keontae? So I'm always a bullish, optimistic person when it comes to Florida basketball. <laughs> I, I, and this is probably to my own detriment to some degree, but I've always seen this program, especially post Billy Donovan, as one that does generally do really good things, even if it disappoints its fans from time to time for reasons that sometimes pass understanding and sometimes make a lot of sense. Um, but I thought that this team, as constructed, was going to have a pretty good shot of going to the NCAA Blue Tournament with a higher seed, uh, you know, something in the five, six, seven range. Uh, I think you saw the first three games of the season, that team figure out how it was going to win, um, you know, wanting to run, wanting to do the things that Mike White said it was going to do. Uh, and then I think Johnson going down obviously changed all that. And you've got a team that was really set up to do one thing really, really well, which is probably run, push pace and attack. Um, you know, you've got to do a little bit different sort of things with a player who, you know, Florida's had really – good focal players in the past, but I don't think there's ever been a player who is said to be as focal to a team as Johnson was this year's team preseason SEC player of the year uh, through four games. His usage rate was something like 32%, which is up there, you know, top 20, 25 nationally. Uh, this was going to be Keontae Johnson's team and that it's not Keontae Johnson's team. Uh, it's obviously no one's fault, 
but it changes everything about that team. It changes everything about, you know, the way players are going to react without him on the court, thinking about him obviously being uh, collapsed on the court, playing for him, playing with the idea that they've got to have some sort of spirit of him. It complicates everything. It obviously depletes Florida of its best player. It changes the way that White's going to be able to use rotations and other more granular things. But it's the sort of thing that is even bigger, I think, in some senses than losing your starting quarterback. You know, this is there's only five players on a basketball court. The one great player on a basketball court goes down, changes everything. And it's not Keontae Johnson is not LeBron James, but on a relative scale, he's as close to a LeBron James as you get in a college basketball program to some degree. So that's changing a whole lot of things for Florida. And, you know, Florida's done, I think, a fairly admirable job of changing and rolling with punches, but it's obviously not always a smooth process, as last night showed us. Absolutely. Definitely not. Even though it's not always a smooth process, Florida still realized that it was their best bet. It would behoove them to go in on what has been an impressive year that not many people expected out of Colin Castleton. You, you obviously orient your offense around him. A lot was made out of Mike White's admission a couple weeks ago that they were gearing more towards the pick and roll and, and screening more and getting away from the dribble drive, especially with Keontae Johnson out. But then you add in Scotty Lewis missing 18 days there due to health and safety protocol. What do you make just of the last two and a half, three week stretch that has seen Florida change what they do offensively while still struggling with some of that inconsistency on defense? Well, I think you point to the idea that everything you do in a college basketball season generally is a matter of figuring out what you can install in two weeks of practice or two days of practice before a game and hoping that your players are going to do it. And then magnifying that this year by every other protocol that you got to go by. You know, if you don't have Scotty Lewis in practice, you don't have a way to show, you know, this is what some athletic player on the other team is going to do. Or you don't have a way to, you know, when you get to a game, guard the other team's best defensive um, or maintain somebody on the other team's best offensive player. Uh, and, and you don't have the same sort of versatility that you did. So you know, the idea that Florida has changed up its approach, that happens. You know, we if fans and journalists uh, alike. Last year, Florida switched up its offense again. Um, I want to say five, six games in the season. Things weren't going well. Mike White decided to scrap everything. And they came out of it with a better offense and made a whole lot more sense for the personnel on hand, Andrew Nimhart and others. This year, I think that was sort of the same idea, but obviously you didn't necessarily want to change things for personnel that you figured out didn't fit your offense as much as you wanted to feature personnel that you didn't think were going to be as big a deal in your offense. Um, And to their credit this year, I think Florida's got players who bought into the system, bought into what Mike White wants to do, bought into the idea that they're going to have different and changing roles in the wake of Johnson going down and have in a lot of ways stepped up. And that's obviously a really good thing, a heartening thing for a fan. But it's also true that they are not winning the same way that they would have won if Keontae Johnson had been around. And they are, if you look at a game like West Virginia or look at a game like Tennessee, they are winning with players that you don't think would necessarily match up as perfectly against those teams as Johnson might have. Hmm. You know, Derek, Derek Culver coming out and getting, you know, I think it was 27-12 and 12 or something against um, Florida you don't think that that's going to happen if Keontae Johnson's around to grab some of those 12 rebounds. Um, last night, South Carolina being able to go get offensive rebounds time and time again down the stretch. Probably Keontae Johnson grabs a couple of those if he's on the defensive end for, the, for those important moments. But at the same time, 
you don't have the luxury of turning to that. So you've got to figure out these ways to make things work. And if you don't have uh, the personnel, that's obviously on you as a recruiter. If you don't have the guy developed the way you want, it's obviously on you as a coach. And it becomes a cycle of if you don't get everything to work perfectly, even in even in a situation where you're scrambling and you're trying to figure out a B plus or C plus plan to go with your A plus plan that got thrown out the window when somebody got hurt, you know, you get criticism for it. Absolutely. And as you know, Andy, uh, Mike White gets a lot of criticism and it's definitely, well, coming, <laughs> it's definitely coming after this latest loss. Um, before we let you go, just I want to get your Mike White take just on him as a coach, where his program is at, um, you know, maybe how you see this the rest of the season playing out and how that will impact his future. So if I had to guess, if you, you, you put me on the spot right now and you put money on the line, I would guess that Florida makes the NCAA tournament. I would guess that Florida is you know, the equivalent of a 20 win team. You're probably not going to get to 20 wins this year with COVID taking out as many non-conference games as it did. And probably this is a team that goes and wins one or two games. I, I don't think it's necessarily better than the sweet 16 team, especially without Johnson or without somebody improving as unforeseen in the next six weeks. Uh, I also don't think it's a team that's going to fail to make the NCAA tournament. There's just too much good stuff in its past. Those, those wins against Tennessee and West Virginia are quite good. Um, but that's the problem for a lot of Florida fans is that they expect things greater than just making the NCAA tournament or making even the round of 32. You know, this is a program that got really fat and happy to some degree, or at least made it, made its fans fat and happy, I should say. Uh, by the virtue of the fact that Billy Donovan was a Hall of Fame coach who had a really long run of really good success that was unprecedented in Florida. Uh, he managed to maintain it despite the fact that Kentucky went from being under Tubby Smith, a really powerful program, and even under Rick Pitino, a really powerful program that he had to deal with, to a program that was sort of ebbing at the end of Smith's career and obviously when Billy Gillespie was there, uh, then turning back into a colossus with John Calipari coming back. And you know Donovan made Final Fours, in 2014, made them with teams that were pretty significantly different, those two teams. Yeah. And then in, in between, managed to recruit guys who were in the NBA for Al Horford, you know, still in the NBA. So we've got, what, 13, 14-year NBA players who did something that hadn't been seen before in college hoops uh, and hasn't been seen and probably won't be seen uh, going forward. So that sort of success obviously spoiled whoever is going to follow it just like Steve Spurrier's success spoiled everything for Ron Zook. Um, <laughs> but I don't think Mike White's Ron Zook either. I think he's got a whole lot more um, acumen in a lot of ways. And I don't, I don't think Ron Zook was necessarily a quote-unquote bad coach, but he was certainly a coach that I think was unsuited to the task at hand. Do we well, think were, that's true of Mike White? I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Well, you were not unsuited to this task at hand. Andy, uh, obviously, great job uh, recapping everything, giving your perspective. And uh, we definitely uh, appreciate and enjoy all your work at alligatorarmy.com. Encourage everybody to go there great and stuff. check it out. And uh, happy to have you on, man. We'll definitely do it again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great stuff from Andy there. Really appreciate his time and perspective and all the work that he's doing over there at alligatorarmy.com. And I think. Obviously, Dan Mullen and his staff have done a lot of work in the 2021 cycle, so much to the point, Graham, that they were able to kind of kick back and not have a busy National Signing Day, which we let everybody know going into Wednesday, if you read Gatorsports.com, that they didn't need to call off work if you're a recruit, Nick. You know, there was going to be no 
press conference from Dan Mullen, there was going to be no recruit sign because they didn't send out any letters of intent. And that includes to some guys who were announcing on Wednesday. But Florida has reached the point, and they were almost there after the early signing period, where they didn't have a lot of scholarships to give out. Now, obviously, some guys leaving, like James Houston and Evan McPherson, opened up some spots, which is how they ended up with the Mississippi State kicker. But you know, more than that, you look at every scholarship that became available, and it was a total of five. They've added five transfers. So that's pretty much all those spots have been taken up. Now, we still don't know if that kicker is going to be placed on scholarship, but Florida right now has basically been filling up to that 85-man scholarship limit, and that's why the staff made the decision to you know, be content with kind of where they are right now, go into the spring, see where the chips fall where they may in terms of if somebody else leaves Florida as another potential transfer or if more than likely there's going to be a lot of guys that enter the portal that they could potentially look to add one or two spots that are there. So that's kind of how Florida played it. That's kind of where things stand. But that's also maybe not what fans wanted on Wednesday when National Signing Day has been such a a big moment each and every year. Yeah, you didn't have those big stories where Dan Mullen was waking up, drinking his strawberry smoothie in his driveway. Great story (laughs) by Will Salmon in The Athletic a few years ago. I I loved that. Just gave you a behind-the-scenes look at what college coaches did on what, until recently, was the biggest day of the year in determining the future success of your college program. How many blue chips would you land? Would you beat out your rivals for who they needed? I mean, Zach, it was, what, five years ago? Not even when... We were waking up that Wednesday when there was no early signing period and Florida was in the mix for C.J. Henderson, Kamari Gamble, Sean Davis, the whole kit and caboodle against the Canes. And obviously they kind of made out like bandits there, but that was so huge. Now, what's Dan Mullen doing this Wednesday? Taking a vacation. I mean, if you had asked Steve Spurrier two decades ago if he could have imagined taking a vacation on signing day, he probably would have given you some really funny answer. But he would have said no way because that day is so critical. Yeah, now, I took a vacation last week, Graham. Yeah, when I played Georgia. <laughs> now, you always know that this day is going to be monumental when it comes to changing the face of your program. This is also kind of why, Zach, you had people coming out of the woodwork, jumping the gun when the transfer portal was created, at saying, oh, it's going to be like free agency. Because if you're a team like the Gators, like Georgia, Clemson, Alabama, that thinks that they're in win-now mode every single year, Colleges and coaches are finding out that it may benefit you more to go out there and get that frustrated three-star, four-star guy who's already developed, that you can plug in and play, bring you some leadership, rather than going out there and getting a guy on the trail who may end up leaving you as well if you don't play him as a freshman. It's a year-by-year tryout. Coaches are now looking at it as, would I rather have a guy who's played three years in a system and can come in right away and play, or would I rather develop a five-star who can maybe benefit me in two years, but also may leave at any point. Coaches are looking at that now, and I think you're seeing Florida shrewdly benefiting from some of those decisions. And the Gators right now finish with a top-10 class, according to rivals in ESPN, but they drop from 8 to 13 on the 24-7 sports composite. Now, a lot of that had to do with them not adding any more recruits, but also some guys that were on their commitment list leaving and going elsewhere, notably Trevante Rucker, who was a four-star wide receiver and was definitely helping their their team ranking out. So that went down, but if you still look at their class as a whole and you include the transfers, it's a, it's a hall of 27 players. 
22 recruits and five transfers. Technically, you know, we're, we're counting DeWan Black, and that's another topic which I'm about to bring up. But you look at this hall, and I think it's important to look at it that way because the transfers are part of that with the recruits. I mean, it's a, it's a really great job of addressing the needs that they had to do. Getting two quarterbacks, which definitely you needed to do after losing Kyle Trask. Getting a pair of wide receivers, getting a pair of tight ends, and then make that three with Eric Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Getting three offensive linemen, which wasn't a huge need. When Although Dan Mullen said that it was after the early signing period. He said with the remaining scholarships, they need to go out and get some offensive linemen. Well, that was before... Gene DeLance and Stuart Reese decided to come back for for another year. And both of those guys are going to be back. So that leaves the Gators with 16 offensive linemen for 2021. So And that includes the three incoming freshmen. So not a huge need there. We knew that defensive tackle was a huge need, and they signed two guys at that spot from the recruiting ranks and then two grad transfers. So four total defensive tackles. That's pretty good job of making sure you address that need. Really two uh, good defensive ends uh, in Justice Boone and Tyreek Sapp, who's a top 100 recruit. And then, obviously, you look at the linebackers that they signed and Chief Borders, Jeremiah Williams, and Dewan Black, who could play defensive back as well. And then their secondary hall, Jason Marshall and, and Jordan Young, Corey Collier, Donovan McMillan, and, and Dakota Mitchell. Graham, the Gators are going to have 13 freshman defensive backs on their roster next year so you know I know a lot of fans wanted them to add Terry on Arnold on Wednesday and I'm sure Florida would have loved to if they had the scholarship room but it's not like they're going to be hurting in the spring and in the fall because they don't have enough DBs they do and this most recent haul definitely helped get their numbers up but one guy I didn't mention because I did with the kicker was oh yeah by the way Demarcus Bowman you know, so that's two five-star transfers that you add along with all those pieces and that depth there. I mean, it's obviously you could want some more things, but it's hard to complain about the class if you look at it with the transfers factored in. Yeah, I just have to it, – it reinforces in my mind that we need a new system. Yes. And not to take anything away from 24-7 and Rivals and ESPN because obviously – This obviously, is a new thing, yes. They, they could not have been expected to adjust – their team ranking system based on the transfer portal's proficiency and how much it's increased. They couldn't have expected that whatsoever. But this is now three straight years where you can say that Florida could, could you arguably could say that Florida has gone after their top piece in the class through the transfer portal. Yes. And whether it was Lorenzo Lingard, Justin Shorter last year, a guy in Justin Shorter who not many people expected him to play but played a huge role, and Lorenzo Lingard this year, a guy who's going to be expected to contribute in that running back room. And then another five-star running back in this cycle. And then you add Demarcus Bowman as well. And, you know, we've been talking for 30 minutes, and we're just mentioning Eric Gilbert, who in the time since we recorded a podcast last week finalized his decision and would be the biggest piece in every single recruiting class, and yet he's in footnote, in a sense, in this weekly podcast when we spend most of the time talking and about a Florida basketball be. loss. And he shouldn't be. And that is why the recruiting rankings are busted, quote-unquote, in a nutshell. Because we're talking about a possible generational talent. If you, you know, not my words, when Eric Gilbert signed for LSU, there were pieces that came out from The Athletic, multiple places saying, oh, he's one of the toughest guys to ever cover out of the state of Georgia. 
and he's barely being mentioned. He's not factoring into that top class. Eric Gilbert gets in the building, and Florida is being written about as a number 13 class. That does not make any sense to me. Yeah, and especially here's here's really where it boils down to, right? I said they had 22 early signees, right, and then five transfers. We don't know if one of those five is going to be on scholarship with the kicker. But I said 22 early signees. Well, one of those signees is a JUCO transfer. And guess what? He was the number one junior college player in the country. And guess what? He gets to count toward Florida's ranking because he's rated as a prospect because he's in junior college and is coming in as a JUCO transfer. So if that kind of a transfer can factor in and has always factored into the rankings, they have to be updated so that guys that enter the portal can be factored in as well. And the, obviously the easiest thing to do is to take their old recruiting ranking or, or rating, should I say, what they were rated as a player in the 80s or 90s or whatever and apply that again. And then they could update it better or worse based on how that player had performed in That's college. where it gets a little bit tricky in my mind because I think, so theoretically, if you're 24-7, you'd have to consult with, I think, the team reporters who were covering the kid before they transferred to the other program and say, hey, from what you heard, how likely were they to be a factor? How highly regarded are they? Because I don't think Because even... Eric Gilbert is getting re-rated as a five-star recruit exactly. in, in the top tight end in the transfer And I portal. think he should be. I think that's a fair example. When you take a guy like Eric Gilbert, who caught 35 passes as a freshman, and 24 of those went for 10 yards or longer or a touchdown, that guy kind of speaks to me as, okay, yeah, the five-star billing lives up. Now, take a maybe guy like, Lorenzo Lingard maybe not would have been exactly. a five-star or, re-ranked because of he didn't have enough production Or Justin Shorter, who I mentioned. Sure. You know, that's a guy who was knocked at Penn State for several things as well and couldn't necessarily get on the field for a variety of reasons, not necessarily all on his own, but you could as have, he showed. You could have questioned... Yeah, there were certainly some fair knocks, but you could have questioned by lowering that recruiting ranking to four stars. Even then, you're factoring in a four-star addition to that class. It's not just a null and void yeah. thing. If, if he was a former five-star recruit, then you're talking about if he's not still a five-star, a top 100, top 150 type player in, in the re-ranking of where his player rating would stack up in a traditional It just gets so unfair know, to me 50. because like a guy who's a five-star and doesn't work out one year, then has that label attached to them for four years, and they transfer to a program, and people, even if they improve their stock, you have the outside noise saying, well, they were a five-star, and now he's just he's only having six and a half tackles for loss. They're going to find any way to knock you. You look at what Jalen Phillips did at Miami. I thought that was a really impressive way of living up close to that former five-star billing as well, and there are still and, people... And Trevon Grimes. Absolutely, another one as well. Guys, that's why I said three straight years, because I... Grimes, before this whole Lingard, that was another five-star, former five-star that, that, that Florida got in the building. Uh, a blue-chip prospect, no matter what site you use. You look at Jalen Phillips, you know, that's a guy who completely rehabilitated his image down there at Miami, and people are still saying, well, you know, I mean, he didn't live up to the five-star billing. Well, that's got to be an NFL player. I just think there needs to be a more complex system. And then, and then obviously you look at a guy like Brent Cox Jr. come in and, and still got more room for improvement, We're, but right away— getting five-stars that have come in here. But right away, his first season playing ends up being a second-team All-SEC. So the fact also that in most cases, and, and Cox was actually one of the ones where it wasn't the case, but in most cases, they're not only getting these guys that were highly rated in, in, in high school 
and they're coming in as, as transfers. But in most cases, those players are eligible to play that next season, and they're making an impact right away and for multiple years in the case of Grimes. And in that context, uh, these players are even more beneficial and, and probably could help you uh, sometimes sooner than, than the high school prospects would. But nonetheless, that's kind of where Florida stands. And they had a chance to maybe add two or three recruits once the early signing period wrapped up. But once those defensive tackles started getting added and Eric Gilbert got added and they took on the kicker after McPherson left, spots just started filling up. And, and right now, they're not going into 21 really lacking depth at any position. As, is the quality there? Are they happy with where their starters are going to be? That's going to get figured out once they start practicing. But from a depth standpoint, and I think in most positions from a recruiting standpoint, they did a great job in 2021. Not an elite job, not the best that it could be, but certainly where they had shortcomings, they made up for it in the transfer portal once again. So um, I think now – We'll see where things uh, shake out in the spring, what the 22 cycle looks like, and maybe some recruiting rules and stuff get opened up a little bit more so that players uh, can come to campus and coaches can go to high schools and what have you. So, But I'm sure the staff is already hard at work at that, and uh, I'm sure Mike White and his staff are already hard at work trying to figure out how to bounce back from that loss. But Graham and I will be back next week to uh, recap how that went and where things stand as the Gators try to uh, punch their ticket to the tourney and uh, get some postseason action. For Graham Hall, I'm Zach Albaverde from the Gainesville Sun. No one.